cool. Yep, cool. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome. Um, so I'm John Crocroft. I'm from the Computer Laboratory, which is a curiously named the Computer Science Department, which goes back 75 years when it was the Mathematical Laboratory, and we built machines for doing mathematics, which are basically computers. So we kept the laboratory name, uh, which, so I just have to explain that. Um, four of us are all from there. Um, this T-shirt represents a funding source for some of the work we're going to talk about, which is a European uh, project, uh, which is across a bunch of uh, different institutions, uh, universities, research labs, and companies, uh, including Telefonica, Ericsson, and other people, and including universities in other part of Europe, uh, to look at measuring stuff in the internet. And, and the reason I say stuff is that it, it's the broadest remit. It's a research project. So it was, here's some money to measure stuff, and then you go figure out what's important to measure. So we've ended up measuring some uh, things that I think may be quite interesting uh, to you. Um, we're going to have four talks. I'm going to kick off with a brief talk about some work that I've been doing with uh, one of my uh, PhD students who's scarily finished her PhD in about two and a half years, uh, which is going to be about, about censorship on the internet, um, which I think is quite an important, interesting topic. Um, that just point out the interesting range of where people come from. We have uh, Safar, who's from Pakistan, Andrew, who's from Australia, and Diana, who's from Romania. So we're, and I'm, I'm English, <laughs> about as English as you can get. So we're very international, uh, as is, of course, Cambridge. Um, uh, and long may it remain so. So um, the, the, the panel title is Who Can Really Say What to Whom on the Internet? Um, and so this is, to some extent, sounds like, you know, what, what do you want to say? Uh, but also, what are you allowed to say? And if you say it, who can hear it? There's, there's a whole bunch of things there. But, but also, it begs a question, which is, uh, who are you anyway? Uh, who do we, you know, how do we know who you are? Are you actually a human, for example? Stuff that you get on the Internet uh, frequently. You receive things that look like tweets or look like email uh, or look like web pages, uh, but may, in fact, be generated by uh, a robot. Um, not necessarily a walking android, uh, but some piece of program that does stuff. So we're going to hear about a bit about that. Um, and then, of course, uh, so, so who says what to whom? Of course, the person listening may not be a human either. Uh, it may be a program that's looking at everything you say uh, to figure out what to then advertise to you, recommend to you, or set a price for, for example. may look at what you search for and decide that the hotel price it offers you is different because you look like somebody who would, who would like a discount or you look like somebody who doesn't care, therefore a very high price might be something uh, that would be good. So, so the who can really say what to whom is sort of, in fact, you could unravel a rather complicated set of things in there. And then, of course, on the Internet, and there's a big difference between in this room, uh, you can see who we are and we told you who we are and you can come and find us after this or, 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 or track us down and, and look at our webpage and so on. There is my homepage if you want to look it up. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and so, you know, we have this human trust system and so on of, of, of seeing people in the real world, in real life, some people say on the internet, RL. Um, but, uh, uh, of course, the, the, the internet is a sort of mediation channel which is somewhat different than writing letters to people, you know, Newton writing to Leibniz, saying, how dare you invent this calculus thing? I've already done it. It's full fluctuations. And Leibniz going, I'm not speaking to you because I did it first, and my notation's better than yours anyway. Um, so, uh, sorry, that's a physics, not, not internet. But, you know, letters, of course, took weeks to fly around. There's a lovely talk by one of the internet experts from AT&T, uh, Bell Labs, uh, originally a guy called Andrew Odlisko, where he talks about all these... 
wonderful communications. There's somebody writing saying, Dear Dad, I know you're really busy with this international trade business. It would be really nice if you come home and see your mum and the kids every now and then. And this is a stone tablet sent from Assyria to somebody on a boat 3,000 years ago that they found, you know. So, so this sounds, you know, just like uh, somebody kind of sending an email, email whinge to, to, to Dad today. Uh, and it's interesting, the content doesn't change. This is the sort of story of that lesson. So, but the internet, of course, does change things. We do have computers, we do have mediation, uh, and so there's stuff out there that's different. Um, and and so, um, so we're going to have four talks. We're going to be rel hopefully relatively brief. I will try to uh, be the briefest once I finish introducing things. Uh, uh, and, then, um, and then we'll have, at the end of each talk, sort of ten minutes, we'll have a couple of questions. But then we'll move on to the next talk. But at the end, we've left a half an hour slot for generally Q&A. So you know, if, you, if you're saving up questions, if you scribble them down for later, that would be great. And if, if we run out of time, then please feel free to come up to us afterwards or, or get in touch with us afterwards to follow up. Because this is ongoing work uh, we're interested in. Obviously, it's an ongoing business. So, so we have four talks. I'm going to kick off with a brief talk about censorship. Um, very brief. Uh, then we're going to move on to Safari's talking, talking about uh, telling the difference between humans and bots uh, in, in Twitter in this example. We'll move on to Andrew, um, who uh, has been working in measurement on the Internet much longer than most people in the world, and he's talking about how we do this and what is the technology and what you can find out about it. And he's got a, a very, very nice example from very recent events, as, as, as little as 24 hours ago. And then, uh, and then Diana talking about uh, a, a deep dive into particular interesting things that happen when you measure stuff in the net. There's a terrible joke on there. For, I'm not going to go on about four candles. So. Um, uh, the other thing on there is that the University of Cambridge is part of the Turing Institute. Alan Turing, of course, is a famous alumnus of Cambridge University and, and other places. And we now have a massive center for data science, which is a collaboration with four other universities. And a number of us spent some time there working on analyzing stuff, uh, which is this is a very small piece of. So that's... Uh, a, a very just recently started new institutes of partnership with Oxford, Warwick, uh, Edinburgh University, and University College of London. Okay, so uh, this is the only slide I have about censorship, but it's four interesting aspects of censorship, um, which, which I think you may be familiar with. Um, so filter bubbles, uh, keeping you safe, uh, the Great Firewall of China, and, uh, sorry, Qi, not China, but anyway, and uh, Sirkov and Google bombs. I'll explain that in a second. So, four, four aspects of censorship. So, so, filter bubbles have been something that has been talked about for a while. Um, this is uh, the observation that on the internet and in many other spheres of media, uh, we tend to live in uh, what some people call also an echo chamber. Uh, the echo chamber is slightly different in, in, uh, in that it's sort of we say stuff and what we hear back is similar to what we say. So, the views expressed are kind of constrained to be similar to our own. And the filter bubble is, an, is a reflection of the fact that that's semi-automated in online media. So on, 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 on traditional media, let's say newspapers and TV uh, you, or radio, you might choose the channel that reflects your interests and, and reflects your views and your opinions. Uh, and therefore, you hear stuff back that you tend to agree with. You choose the, the newspaper. Online, this gets to be a little bit more weird because the internet has disintermediated those channels uh, in the sense that, you know, that, that now it's not just the Daily Mail that's printed that you go pick up or the Telegraph or the Guardian or BBC or, or 
Sky or Fox News in America or whatever, um, but it's also all the online news feeds you get through Twitter and all these other channels, and that the, the systems are forwarding things to you based on things you've liked. And so you're getting a selective view that increasingly concentrates on what you like. Of course, that's not explicit censorship. That's implicit censorship. And you can choose to go outside of your comfort zone, as some people say. You can ex explicitly say, you know, I may be sort of uh, pinko commie uh, King's College Cambridge nutter, but I'm going to go look at Fox News and try and keep my blood pressure down while I do it. Um, so just so that I figure out what the other side think, right, for example, or just get a different view of what's going on. It could be you might do that for another reason. Uh, one of my students a while ago looks at people who do that, and it turned out it was interesting. They look at things that are not typically in the political affiliation they like, but it turned out there was a, uh, a baseball commentator on Fox News who actually was their top commentator in this curiously U.S. sport. Um, but the, a lot of people followed him, but on Twitter... His politics were way out in liberal land, not in, in, in um, uh, Democrat US-style liberal land, um, uh, and not aligned with Fox. So people were exposed to something because they followed somebody for a different reason, which they liked his sports commentary, and then they had saw this other stuff. And, of course, that shows you the, the Internet's not as simple as a unidimensional, it's left or right. There are many other features which save us from being completely stuck in a filter bubble. The second thing in censorship, keeping you safe, is uh, explicit censorship. And this is something the UK runs. Um, this is to stop you getting at stuff that it is criminal to get at. Uh, so we don't want to go into what that might be. The, the, the very famous example in the world is in Germany, it's illegal to show Nazi memorabilia. It's simply a crime. And so German internet providers filter sites that show that because it's not illegal for an American biker to buy such things. So there are sites that advertise it, and the people buying it may not be buying it because they actually buy into the, the philosophy. They may just be buying it because it's part of a, uh, a fashion culture. Unfortunate, but, you know, that's a thing. Um, but in Germany, it's filtered, and that's explicitly filtered. ISPs have to block it because otherwise their customers might accidentally get something, and then end up in jail. And there are similar things in many countries, which are, most of us, they're, they're, they're not hidden, so they're not secretive, um, they're not aligned with anything other than something, you know, that's clear in the law. So the third kind of filtering is, uh, is where government agencies block stuff uh, because it, they think it undermines their political position or they think it might be socially disruptive. They explicitly filter things. So the Great Firewall of China blocks a whole bunch of things. And uh, it's not clear that you know, what they're blocking is necessarily going to cause a massive revolution or whatever, um, but, but it's clear that it's, it's sort of, to some extent, arbitrary. Things that are being filtered are you know, literally being blocked. You cannot reach any of Facebook for a long period of time. You cannot get a, the New York Times website. And this is sort of arbitrary in the sense there may be many things on these sites, in these services, which are completely harmless to the Chinese culture and politics, but... Uh, they use this very simple, heavy-handed mechanism. Um, and uh, so we measure those things. You can infer what's happening by seeing that, you know, that when you measure all the people visiting the New York Times website, we're not spying on who they are, but we can look at the Internet addresses that are frequently accessing there, and we see none from China. So we infer that they're being completely blocked. And, of course, there are many examples of countries that are uh, not particularly open uh, democratic societies that have that kind of filtering going on. 
Um, and, and sometimes it, it's uh, accidental. So uh, my student who's just finishing her PhD was measuring censorship in Pakistan um, where they accidentally blocked all of YouTube, all YouTube videos, including YouTube videos from companies in Pakistan where the video was an advert. So you go to a Pakistani website uh, that said something about, you know, here's where you can get, I don't know, whatever it happens to be, um, um, uh, you know, lower-cost flour for making flatbread or whatever, and, uh, and the video from site would be blocked because all of YouTube was blocked. And that wasn't intentional. It was, uh, you know, it was, a, it was an economic damage to the company from that. And the reason we were looking at it is we were asked to look at this by the Pakistani ISP so we could help refine their filter so that it blocked things that were more like the second case where you don't want stuff that would cause riots in the street where people might die, but of course you do want companies to be able to put perfectly reasonable videos of here's how you make flatbread with our product, right? For example. So, so. Um, the third category of censorship is the most interesting one, I think, the most difficult one. Um, and this is, uh, Surkov is, uh, if anyone's seen any of Adam Curtis's rather scary videos, a recent one on uh, iPlayer, not, on, not broadcast TV, but an iPlayer was uh, hypernormalization, but he, he mentioned this guy in Russia. Russia implements a form of censorship which is the most sophisticated form around. Um, they don't block things much. They probably don't filter and block much more than we do. But what they do is the government uh, hire a bunch of people. They pay, quite often students in Moscow State University and other places, quite a lot of money to monitor social media. And any time there's something that kind of disagrees with the government position, they will then pile in in a larger number of people, and this is uh, 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 measurable, um, and say something slightly irrelevant, <laughs> somewhat humorous or ironic or not quite on topic, but with some of the same words, so that somebody following the thread has to read it to check if it's true or not or if it's relevant or not. And so for each item, somebody goes, you know, maybe Russia should back off a bit on bombing in Syria. There'll be 5,000 things saying, well, you say that, but, you know, the Americans are bombing over in Yemen or supporting somebody else or whatever it happens to be. Well, maybe even be slightly wrong. It doesn't matter. Um, and then there'll be this huge uproar of discussion about this other thing, and the, the political point would have vanished in the noise. Not, not have been blocked. It will still be there. You could find it. But it's incredibly hard to follow. Um, and this is part of a whole mechanism of managing... Uh, information in society in, in that culture, and there are other places have used it too, um, and it's very sophisticated. It's also much, much more difficult to measure than something that's sort of binary. You can get to this site or not from this country or not. So this is much more subtle because, of course, many of us may look at social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, and think that that's what's happening anyway, wherever you are. Every time somebody brings something up, there's a huge irrelevant discussion about a whole bunch of other things. Uh, I'm sure we can come up with recent examples. Um, Google bombs refers to a slightly other thing, which is when, um, uh, if somebody's being attacked because of their position, which may be completely reasonable, there may be a lot of people trolling them. Uh, Google, so they're sending offensive stuff. They're, they're effectively being censored by, uh, uh, by public, maybe public opinion, maybe only a small number of, of annoying people. Uh, but continually attacking them. Google bombing is a trick which you actually turn the thing around. If, you can, if you're a famous enough person, you can enlist a bunch of friends and set a, a whole viral friendship network going and reverse the attack and bomb the attacker with way too much, which is a very similar trick, except sort of turning it around for good. And this is to illustrate something which is um, very, very tricky, uh, which, which is, you know, it is difficult in this whole area to tell what's, what's good or bad. Assigning any kind of value judgment to it is incredibly tricky. 
Any of these things can be used in, in, in any way. So I've illustrated you know, filter bubbles are trying to reduce the information overload that you may have. So you only get stuff that's, that some service, Facebook, whoever, think is relevant to you. So you don't, get, you don't have to read 10,000 opinions, just the ones that are like the ones you'd like to read. Uh, keeping you safe is to stop you breaking the law. But you can extend that to stopping you thinking about changing the law. <laughs> Uh, so firewalls that block stuff arbitrarily just so you don't happen to come up with the idea that maybe free market economics is a bad idea or always a good idea or whatever in some culture where that's uh, outside of the norm. Um, and then lastly, you know, the, there's this uh, mechanism for filtering based on flooding, overloading everyone with somewhat irrelevant material, uh, and that can also be used for good. So, or it can be used for a, a defensive mechanism for people that are being attacked. So, so that's just, just want to illustrate the landscape. So underpinning this, there's a whole bunch of activity you actually have to do to figure out what's going on. So I'm going to hand over to the second speaker, uh, who's going to talk about his work on, if I can find it, uh, here we go, um, bots. So, uh, so while he's just getting up here, does anyone have a very quick question of clarification on what I said, or we can handle it at the end of all the speak speakers? I was going to put on these dark glasses, so you can't tell who I am, but <laughs> <laughs> it was too late. <laughs> so, and we're in the room. Yes, sure. Yes. The, okay, this is a very good question. So the technology platform, Twitter versus Facebook versus blogging versus like Twitter is microblogging, they, they have limitations of the kinds of things you can do. Twitter limits the number of characters you can send. Facebook uh, doesn't allow arbitrary sharing with people on another social media. So if you have a friend who's in... Uh, uh, sign a Weibo, which is a big Chinese social network. I can't friend them from Facebook. Um, so these are, these are constraints that are platform constraints, uh, partly technology, partly economic. Um, yeah, um, there are people that look at that. I mean, uh, we could talk about that at the end maybe if, if, if it's of general interest. It's certainly an aspect of what's happening. Um, the, the, I, I kind of alluded slightly to the economic aspect when I talk about accidentally over-censoring, not intentionally blocking things. Um, in some cases setting a walled garden so you can't do things on this medium is, is intentional because it's to capture the largest fraction of the population not get tipped into handing all your customers to another platform. Um, that's not really censorship, of course, in the general sense. Uh, it's it's, it's a unfair competition, maybe. <laughs> uh, but there are all kinds of aspects. So it's a great question. Thanks. Um, well, we can... Yeah. We are going to hear about that in the third talk. So... Uh, uh, and we can talk about what, it, what I think about it. I think we're going to hear about a bit about the technology. It is uh, interesting, definitely. So we'll, we'll get on to that for sure. Okay, so let's, uh, let's move to Zafar then. Hi, I'm Zafar, and um, I'm a third year PhD student supervised by John. Uh, I'm working on uh, studying information dissemination on online social networks. So this work is part of that larger picture. So I'm going to start, uh, start with the... Bigger, bigger picture. Uh, automation is not new, so it has it has been there for a few years, and uh, one of the one of the things that started was started with was human generated data. It was not automated, but it was big data, 
and we had OSNs, emails, uh, messaging, other stuff. And then uh, it kind of evolved into, uh, we evolved into studying machine-generated data, uh, logs from webs, from systems, from sensor data. And now we are seeing the evolution to, and that was passive. Now we are seeing the evolution to more active, uh, more active and uh, more active automated data for, in terms of uh, automation on uh, systems such as online social networks, on the web, spam on uh, your emails, uh, LinkedIn, uh, send, uh, different bots on LinkedIn sending recruitment emails, uh, and spam on SMS and other messaging services. Um, there, there's a one. There's one really nice example of three bots. Uh, it's actually very silly, but uh, there are three bots interacting on Twitter uh, on completely irrelevant stuff. So there was one bot talking about uh, some season of some uh, some series, and then there's a bot that jumps in and talk, starts talking about something else. And so the, this interaction goes on until the second bot, the, the Caldo one, mentions Bank of America. Now, Bank of America was being followed by Calder's bot. And uh, it just mentioned BOA. And that, that bot jumped in and started talking about something else, whether you, you were able to find an ATM or something. And so uh, this is amusing because they're actually trolling each other, and this is automated trolling, <laughs> and has completely it's, it's completely uh, devoid of any human interaction here. Three bots trolling each other. <laughs> so, but this is not limited to just that. It's actually much more bigger than that. Uh, bots have been known to artificially inflate support for political candidates. This happened in 2010 uh, U.S. midterm elections, uh, 2012 uh, presidential election where Mitt Romney uh, just uh, got huge number of Twitter following, 100,000 or so followers overnight on Twitter. Uh, there's a, this recent case of Donald Trump acquiring so many followers. Then there are social bots which are designed to expose private information and addresses and phone numbers. This goes uh, on to show the security and privacy threat that these, uh, this automation is uh, posing. Then there are bots which are contributing to uh, polarization of political discussions. There's a nice paper on how Syrian war discussion has been influenced by uh, bots. Uh, there are also bots which are altering social media perception by artificially enlarging the audience of, uh, of, uh, of, a, of an impression or some, some sort of a political uh, incline. Uh, also, Bots are ruining reputation of a company. DC Comics uh, actually got quite a lot of traffic uh, after they released uh, Superman versus Batman uh, from probably from some company which is not which is a direct rival of uh, DC Comics uh, or maybe some uh, some fan base of another comic series. Um, similarly, there was a case of a company which was actually bankrupt and uh, found. Bots tried to bots on Twitter tried to, uh, you know, uh, increase the popularity and uh, just overnight the 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 evaluation was like five billion dollars or something. So these bots are actually causing uh, quite quite a different number of impacts all across uh, all across different systems, including social systems. Then they can propel TV ratings. They can and there there has been a study on. Uh, 
calling volunteers to action for political activism uh, using online bots. Uh, so there are two challenges here. One is the detection of bots, and the other is impact. Uh, with regards to uh, detection, uh, there are a few tools that are available, but they're not reliable in the sense that there's not enough uh, ground truth data available uh, for them to, uh, to score an account as a bot or not. Uh, so uh, there's a nice paper which basically outlines uh, how bot detection might uh, might work. Uh, it d uh, divides that into sort of a taxonomy of different classes of approaches that could be used. Uh, one of them is the detection based on social network information, but this might not be very rel uh, reliable because these bots are getting smarter. Uh, the other one is using human intelligence to create a ground truth data set. And part of my work was dealing with doing that uh, for creating a ground truth labels for, for the bot classification to be more reliable. And the other one is machine learning, obviously, and uh, NLP, which is hardly studied in this context. There are two tools that you might find interesting. One of them is bot or not. Uh, but it, it's not very reliable because even though it's using classifiers and features, it's not exactly using uh, a ground truth data set which, it can, uh, which the model can use to train itself. And then there's another one, Sybil Rank, which is, which is focused more on malicious botnets rather than bots on Twitter. The other challenge is the impact. So some of the work uh, exists on discrete cases that measure impact in, uh, in terms of uh, how bots uh, interact on Twitter, on online social, other online social networks, and bots generally on the web. Uh, the web traffic, according to, th this one is kind of an older figure, but the, the latest one says it's about 48.5%, that's almost half the traffic on the web, is bot traffic. And that's quite alarming. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a big number. Uh, and from our studies, we have found that it's actually close to that, yes. Uh, there's hardly any work on measuring impact on how information propagates in online social networks, and that's what we do. Uh, so what we did was, uh, as a first step, we created a bot to study other bots. <laughs> so what we have is kind of a honeypot. Uh, we have we have a bot account which posts about uh, job uh, job opportunities and celebrity news, basically to slip under the, the human radar. But even despite doing that, we we find that a lot of bot traffic, a lot of the traffic that we get is bot traffic. So uh, from the measurements, uh, so Sarah is part of uh, Streeler framework that we are building. Uh, it has different components. I'll come back to that later. So. From the clicks that we receive on our URLs, what we do is we put, uh, we tweet about certain topic, we put a URL, the URL is basically a shortened one uh, that if somebody clicks on it would go onto our web server and that's how we can record the clicks. So from the clicks that, that we receive, we find that 45 or more percent of the clicks have, are coming from bots. So uh, Streeler is basically a toolkit that's collecting uh, tweets from Twitter uh, has a bot, has a URL shortener, has a web server to collect all these clicks. Um, so, so the bigger picture, the bigger idea is that uh, we want to 
we want to collect tweets from the streaming API and discern whether that has been tweeted by a bot or, or a human. Basically, just to inform the user that something was automated or not, and, and leave the leave the questions of uh, information credibility and the security to the user for now. Um, the other thing that we want to do is characterize this into uh, into differences that they have in terms of impact. And we define impact uh, basically in terms of uh, user engagement, uh, which, which is basically any activity that you perform on Twitter in terms of clicks, tweeting, retweeting, following, liking, um, content dissemination using influence networks of different accounts uh, to see how, how, they, how the retweet or the tweet is going to, say, next hop or the next hop. And the activity and content generated on, on Twitter itself, uh, using the number of sources that people use to tweet on, uh, on the Twitter platform. For example, your mobile phone, your ap application, or the web, or third-party tools. There are a lot of third-party tools that automate stuff for you. And the size of content that you're posting. And we see, we see large differences between uh, among these things for both bots and humans. So in order to do that, what we do is we, uh, we create a human annotated data set uh, as a first step. Uh, and we divide it into different popularity bands because we believe that a user which is uh, very popular, like a celebrity having 10 million followers or something, is mu has a much bigger impact than a user which has 1,000 followers. Uh, once we have done that, we, we do various, uh, we, we test various classifiers, mostly uh, random forest classifier. And we try to prioritize uh, uh, recall and finding what, uh, what might be a bot or what might be a human. And yeah, so this is the ongoing work. If you want more information, you can contact me and, or, or visit my website. There's a lot more on there. Cool. Okay, yeah. so we just time for a couple of questions. Yeah. 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 So uh, people have done a number of studies where um, where they okay some of the some of the bots say they are bots, and they're posting <laughs> stuff which is automated. Uh, but uh, people have also done studies uh, on finding the patterns. Uh, you know, I talked about. The information on their social on, on their social uh, wall or social network, so that's uh, in some of the cases their tweet frequency is so high that a human could not possibly tweet like uh, say a uh, hundred times in an hour, for example. So they use those sort of uh, characteristics or features to dif differentiate between bots and humans, uh, and some of them advertise themselves as bots. These three. The, uh, the Calders and Taters and uh, Bank of America, they advertise themselves as bots. So in this case, it these were three famous known bots. So people knew about them. Yes. I think it's us. <laughs> More than the bots. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it, it is an But it could one. be. So, so tra automated trading algorithms are a bot. They're a robot. So, so yeah. they are 
that is a perfectly good, uh, it, uh, clearly it's not a social media bot in the normal sense, yeah. um, but certainly at least one of the dips in the pound was ascribed potentially to automatic trading. Most of them uh, came from lots of places, so the general trend I think <coughs> over a long period is not going to be high frequency trading algorithms. Uh, there may be in the back some longer term algorithms. Most of the banks cook up the next day's trades, the advice they give to everyone overnight. And so there is a, an algorithm running there, which is a form of bot for sure. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting question. We can come yeah. back to that. Uh, we should, a very quick question, we can, yeah. Um, I think it's a social experiment. Uh, for in most cases, it's a social experiment, or people just want to put something which is more informative. For example, there's a bot that posts about uh, the rising sea levels on the hour every hour, and then there's a Big Ben bot which is just uh, putting information about the Big Ben in London. Yeah. Okay. So, third speaker, Andrew. Hi. So um, I, I, I've done a little bit of reordering in response back to one question and maybe some general interest. Um, so for some of you may know that the, the, a significant part of the internet seemed to be broken on Friday. Um, there's still repercussions of that going on. And, uh, you know, the internet's broken. You know, I'm trying to do whatever I'm trying to do. And uh, who, who do you call? Well... You know, you can call Virgin Media or your local ISP. If you're not on Virgin Media, maybe you shouldn't call them. Um, <laughs> you can call them anyway. I'm sure they're very nice. Um, and, and uh, you know, do you call Google? You know, uh, this is the most common complaint I might receive, although I'd like to suggest my elderly parent is more technically savvy, but, you know, it's like, Google's not working. I wonder what that means. Anyway, and quite often it's something's not working, but it's very rarely Google is not working. Um, okay, and, and so there's a question about who do I call? And then um, who do, how, do I, how do I even call those organisations if I don't know what their telephone number is? I don't, you know, I don't know that information. You know, I can't uh, email uh, the support people if email's broken. And, in fact, we actually were in a situation where the problem we had was the telephone book was broken. Um, and it more or less is uh, not, it's not the telephone book of the entire internet. And I should point out to, to, to certain members of the audience, these are telephone books. Back in the old days, they're about this big. <laughs> you know, it's, but it's an interesting problem because, because a lot of people don't know actually, that, you know, the average person that comes into my, my courses now will basically have no reason to know what a telephone book is. Why would they use that? They Google the telephone numbers. Um, but the practical reality is telephone books, of course, we recall, they're actually very regional. And the, it's a very similar property in the internet. Telephone books are regional. And it was one of the telephone book providers uh, that stopped working. Um, and so people could only remember, uh, could only dial telephone numbers they, they already knew or had memorised. And uh, so that's a bit of a problem because actually the people that were publishing this telephone book, and yes, I'm going to keep using that analogy, um, they, um, they actually advertise, they, they're, they're, they're quite an important telephone book maker, I guess, uh, and, and there was a lot of services that used them to say, hey, this is the telephone number. So the question is why it happened, because it's like, oh, that's nice, now I know what happened, but why? Why? Well, you remember the Internet of Things. You may have heard of these buzzwords. 
Um, and the, the, the reputed example is, is um, refrigerators that ask for more milk or something like that. Actually, what had happened was there were a whole lot of Internet of Thing devices. This is, I'm actually waiting for the report. The report will come out in the operators community and that's where I hang out and, and they talk about what actually happened. But the current working example is that a whole lot of Internet Thing devices were convinced to ask someone erroneous questions. And unfortunately, that someone was the telephone book. Uh, and the upshot is, if you have lots of people asking you erroneous questions, you can't, suddenly can't answer reasonable requests. And that's what happened. Um, and in fact, we've had examples of this where, um, actually only a few months ago, uh, we had this uh, super denial of service attack. A denial of service attack is where we convince all of you to try and ask me a question simultaneously None of you will get an answer. Everybody gets a bad experience, and I will feel overwhelmed. <laughs> that's, that's a denial of service attack in a nutshell. It's like where you know, all, all, all manners are thrown to the wind. Okay, so, and that's actually what happened here, the denial of service attack. Um, and it's an interesting side effect. It's not in the scope necessarily of the specifics of this, of this um, uh, panel, but it's certainly, um, a very broadly speaking, a very important part of the internet, is that everybody can speak to anybody by default, and then we remove the ability for people to speak to each other as part of our way of protecting ourselves from each other. And, you know, in the case of China, um, it's, they remove the rest of the internet, uh, which is fine, that's, the, that's what they want to do. But that's the sort of operational mode. The upshot is that this is a sort of heat map of the US of things that disappeared. And this is what they felt, things were disappearing. And, and uh, that's, that's, that's a terrible thing. And one of the, one of the big parts of this is, is actually, it sort of leads elegantly <laughs> in some ways to what we're interested in, which is we're quite interested in measuring stuff. Um, because, well, we'd like to know what's going on. And if you don't measure stuff, you don't know what's going on. And in fact, the only way that we could work out that it was denial of service attacks was because we were looking at the sort of que queries that come in to those telephone books and say, oh, that's a really weird query. We get a few weird queries, don't worry about it. Okay, this is really odd. Now we're getting trillions of weird queries and now we know something's gone wrong. Okay, and measurements can help us. You've already seen measurements can help us understand censorship. They can understand where and how and who. I can understand a little bit about the nature of the Twitter bot, although my personal favourite is Twitter. It's perfect for the automatons. Let's just put all the automatons inside Twitter, close the box, pump out the oxygen. <laughs> Everybody's happy, except for whoever's inside the box. Uh, anyway, um, but actually, for, for us, it's practically, you know, I, many of you may have had the experience. You're sitting there maybe watching television or something like that, and you're not streaming it or anything like that, and suddenly your modem's flickering away and it's sitting underneath the TV and you're going, well, I'm not using my computer. I wonder what that is. And, and it's sort of left going, I don't know what's using the computer network because it's not me. The kids are in bed. Um, no, you know, computers are turned off, whatever. Um, but actually, accountability could just be, am I getting what I paid for? And companies care a lot about that and we need measurements to help us out. But actually, it also just helps us understand. Now, um, this is a fairly old map and it doesn't really matter uh, it's, it's a volume. The volume's the, the two purple lines. Anything that's coloured means we kind of have a good guess what it is. Uh, the problem is we don't really know what this bit is. 
Um, that's quite a lot. That's a bit embarrassing. And so those are sorts of things that we, we work towards better understanding of. Um, this is absolutely eons ago, but, you know, multiply everything by 100 and it's roughly the same. But the same sort of issue remains. Um, and it comes back to this idea that not only does the internet enable us to talk to each other, pretty much anyone to anyone, but it also enables us to say pretty much anything to each other. And so, once again, we've got to... You know, the processes for protecting ourselves in the internet world is to remove the ability for people to talk to each other and remove the ability for people to say certain things to each other. Well, that's, that's a challenge because that's not the, the ground-level construction of the internet. OK, what other things might we want to do? Well, we might want to just work out why your program runs slow. Uh, we might have it where you ring up help desk and say, my computer's not working. And at least help desk knows what you're doing because most users don't. Most users have no idea what programs are on their computer, let alone what might be using the network. And so that really helps. But what makes it hard? Well, what makes it hard is all the packets, all the bits of the data that we move through the internet, actually all look the same. You know, fundamentally, they all look very, very similar. And that's actually why it's hard to stop bad stuff. Bad stuff doesn't have a magic pirate flag on it. Oh, that would be awesome. If it had a magic pirate flag on it, oh, our problems would all be over. It doesn't have a magic pirate flag. OK. But also, although the Armageddon proof is largely apocryphal for the internet, um, the internet is very, very good at getting around broken things. And so the broken things, the DNS is actually a great example where that doesn't work as well as we might wish. But for the most part, if I want to send you information and I know who you are, I can throw it into the internet and the internet will try to its best, darn it, to get it to the destination. And also people quite like privacy. Who knew? Um, so we don't want to go peering inside people's packets and going, hmm, they're sending a recipe to their aunt. And no one cares about that stuff. But actually, of course, in, in, in Europe, in the UK, we inherited that law. Yes, there is a theme here. Um, um, we actually have quite a good pri uh, privacy um, sort of institution and that ensures that, that uh, people that might wish they could see inside your data actually can't, not without a lot of uh, legal mumbo. But actually, and this is one hint, the sort of the piece of the hint I want to give you, is actually the scale of understanding what's going on is the challenge. So the reason why DDoS attacks have become successful, DDoS attacks have been around for a long time, but the reason that they're now successful is because we've gone from, I don't know, a few hundred people with an exotic couple of computers and you could set them, get them to send rude messages to, I don't know, 10 million hue bulbs from Philips. I should say I don't suspect they're responsible for DDoS attacks, but I'm just giving you an idea. And if you are able to be evil and take off over every hue bulb, all of them are internet connected. All of them can send rude messages and all of them can cause a problem when they're acting together. And that starts to hint to the scale. The internet is very grand in its scale, but it's also, uh, without being emotional, it's terrifying. It's, 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 it's spectacular in its scale. Um, also, for us, the challenge in measurement is the technologies that move packets fast and make the internet go fast are actually the same technologies that we need to actually understand what the internet's doing at any time. And so we need to pair those together. We also have challenges like where do we look? 
you know, there's not like a customs depot for the internet that we can say, oh, well, we're just going to open every package that looks like it's come from some suspicious place or way or smells like a bomb or whatever. That, that, that those places just don't exist. And that's a challenge for us. Um, in recent internet architectures, uh, sorry, evolution of internet, we've ended up with these things called clouds. Now, the clouds are slightly amusing expression, for me anyway. Um, we, we've had clouds for a long time. They're called someone else's computer. And they might be a service that you buy. You know, we uh, pay good money for, say, some service. Uh, I'm trying to think of a service I pay money for. Hmm, yes. Anyway, um, or we might, we might use a service that's provided by someone like, say, uh, Googles and Microsofts and Amazons and so on and so forth. And, um, and they want something in return. Typically, my firstborn child, a pound of flesh nearest my heart, something like, I don't know, there was a terms and conditions, I signed it, I didn't read it, you know, something like that. I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the updated version of Shylock. Um, yeah. Um, okay, so what goes on in a cloud facility? This is like the run into, I'm, I'm an interstitial, if you're wondering. What goes in a cloud? Well, there's lots and lots of computers running lots of programs that you and I would use without realising it, and that is that they're you, we're running, uh, they're the, they're the, when you go to Facebook, Facebook sends you data, it knows what you're interested in, it knows what your page looks like, Google gives you responses and so on. All the programs that do that are inside cloud data centres, as we would know them. And inside them are lots of servers, they're organised in racks, the racks are organised together, connected together, um, and what is a cloud? Well, cloud's just a multiplication of these things. We get the racks, we put them all together, we then put them into rows, we again get them into acres, we then make them huge. And the reasons are economics. This is all just an economics thing. And these can run you know, many, 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 insert lots of zeros applications. And part of the challenge for us is understanding making sure that all the people don't compete with each other because they might actually be real competitors. You know, we might have three airlines and all of their operations are in this cloud facility for bookings. We don't want mysteriously united. Always seem to have priority. We don't want that. We want whoever gets... You know, we want to reward people for the amount they pay, typically, or we want to reward them by some other properties. And these, cloud, these facilities, cloud facilities, data centre facilities in my nomenclature, are enormous. And what really makes them special is very few of them look like that, but it's actually all about scale. And so how big is big? Well, big is really big. Big is uh, a million servers. That's, that's, that's not even the largest. Big is over a billion dollars to build them. A billion, yeah, anyway, um, and so on. But there aren't that many of them. There's only order of a hundred you know, 80 to 200. And by the way, the numbers end up being slightly secret because companies hate telling you how many they've got. But you can see them from space, so they're really easy to work out. Um, and, of course, then we have to measure it. So then what could possibly go wrong? Well, one of the realities is there's two common ways of measuring the world. One of them is you say, hello, and they respond to you, and you go, right, you're alive and I'm alive, awesome. And there are variations on that. Um, the other one is to look at, just count all the cars that go past or count all the people with yellow T-shirts or whatever that is. Count all the people with pirate flags. Oh, we wish. And 
Both of these have huge challenges at cloud scale, data center scale operations. However, that doesn't mean that they're not important. That just means that we've had this thing called big data. It's been around for a long time. And we have to thin the data out. We have to overcome the problem that we've got trees obscuring forests. And that's all kind of fun for us too. But when we get it right, when we get it right, we can pack people together into, a, into cloud facilities and internet objects. And actually, we can make sure they don't beat up each other. You know, we can make sure that, well, hang on, this is a reasonable set of operations. But all of that actually adds complexity. Unfortunately, it sometimes adds cost. But sometimes it gives us really cool new things. And right now, there's a lot of people wishing they had some active armor to protect them against DDoS attacks because their IoT devices potentially could all be insane. They could all be perfectly fine. They're just being asked to do something perfectly fine over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so now we've got the opportunity to consider, well, how do we bring together an understanding? We've got these data center objects which are new. They're completely new because they're so large. And unfortunately, so large also equals you know, lots of implications for connecting them to the internet is now critical infrastructure. And yet, we also can do really amazing new things. Like you want to you start a new business and it's going to have a growth that's going to mean that you're going to need a million computers in a year's time. Yeah, yeah, that's, there's lots of examples of that now. And that's really great too. Okay, I'm interstitialing to, to the next speaker, but I would be delighted to take some questions. Uh, yes, yeah. It, it is exceptionally... Oh. Okay, this is going to be that fun game of why doesn't this work. So, um, it, it is exceptionally um, robust, but it's also... Um, the practical reality here... Uh, why, why? The practical reality here is wow. the practical reality here is that actually it's only a small piece of the phone book that's been affected. And it's just unfortunate that for us it happens to be, oh, right, okay, that's the white pages for New York. Darn, that's kind of important, it turned out. Who knew? Um, and that's, that becomes the challenge. The challenge is that actually there have been a lot of different um, ways of doing this directory service. Uh, the original ones were hilarious, but actually... The original ones broke in a particular way that was dumb, but actually maybe we should revisit some of those structural ideas. They're certainly... It, it is extraordinarily robust, but it is... It has been an ongoing known issue, and the people that supply these services have actually been responding with some very spectacular engineering to reduce the problem. It's just... Some of it is throw engineering talent very little of it will be through complete revision. So, so uh, yeah, there's two warnings to go with this. One is the specific warning. It appears that most of the IoT devices that may be responsible for these kinds of attacks have default passwords, which you as users, if you got, get a smart bridge, can change. Responsible companies, of course, when they send you your new broadband router, 
they have set a specific password that's different for each person, but unfortunately a lot of IoT people selling smart fridges are irresponsible. I'm sorry, I'm going to say that again, they are irresponsible. Luck unluckily, they're not liable, it would be nice if they were. We're working on changing the law because that would help with that. The second problem is lack of diversity. The problem is this, uh, you know, the, the phone book, or the part of the phone book, but in fact all the phone book is, is a gene pool size of one. This is like the cloned bananas of the world, which are all dying of the same blight. And so Andrew was just alluding there is that there are other ways of doing things, and maybe we shouldn't switch to the other things. Maybe we should just do all of them, uh, and then we'll have something that's working. In fact, most things will be working, and there will just be many different ones. Um, that will be a good thing. So, so there's some interesting stuff. We can move on to discussion, but I don't want to take any more of uh, Diana's time. So. Hello, everyone. So I am uh, continuing from uh, what Andrew just mentioned about um, what are data centers and where all of your where Twitter and uh, social, other social networks run. So again, a picture of a data center. What is a data center? Uh, millions of servers um, where you servers that do various computations and that you can also uh, rent to use your own, um, uh, to, to run your own applications. So besides the big companies that run them like Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, you can also uh, yourself just uh, go online and uh, rent uh, a few servers to run your applications like on uh, Google, uh, on uh, Microsoft Azure, uh, Amazon EC2, for example, or uh, Google's cloud platform. Um, but not only you, but also other companies are using their infrastructure. And uh, as Andrew mentioned about the, um, the um, possibility of having um, multiple um, 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 airline booking systems running within the same data center, you need to ensure that they, uh, the companies that have these services get fair, um, their fair amount of resources and that their services run in at an optimal performance. Um, so, um, how does a data center actually look like besides the, the shiny pictures and uh, that you've just seen? Logically, um, you can see here uh, data center. So the leaves are the servers, uh, the last row. Uh, then you have um, the next row. There are actually switches, network switches that provide communication between servers. The, these are like the edge, um, the edge, uh, the edge switches. Uh, then you have another. Um, row of uh, switches, well, the, the aggregation switches, and then you have the core where you have the actual big switches that connect all the servers between, between uh, each other. Uh, this type of topology is called the flat tree, and it's very used nowadays in uh, data centers. Why is it um, so common? First of all, because um, it enables um, um, communication between um, two servers by having multiple paths between each other. So in case one of the um, uh, link fails or uh, switch fails, then there, uh, there is an alternative path to get from one of the leaves to another one. Also, this uh, having multiple paths between the servers helps with um, spreading the traffic um, so in order not to, to, to burden a certain path with only in a, with, a, with a huge amount of, of network traffic. Um, 
So in, uh, in, in this data center, we can have the, the, <coughs> the problem of running multiple applications and we need to pack, we need to find the place. Where, to, where do you place an application when you have so many servers? How do you ensure that if they communicate between each other, they communicate optimally without um, each one affecting each, um, each other? Like, um, um, and we want to do this um, using um, to, to uh, enable data center, better data center use through um, uh, network measurements. Um, usually, we, uh, an application defines a certain uh, optimal performance um, and um, called like service level agreements that need to be respected and we are looking at how to ensure this. <coughs> so, uh, what happens if uh, these this small examples of um, uh, these pictures are, are here to just to show what, how, what happens if uh, an application doesn't run, doesn't get its resources. It may be squeezed in and will not run optimally. It may, may take up more space that it actually needs. And um, how we, we need, um, the, the results are not fair, it's not fair to, to, for, for the application, so we need intelligent uh, decisions to solve this. But how do we get, um, how do we make this, uh, these intelligent decisions? Well, by taking various measurements. We can measure how much computing power it, it's, uh, the application needs, how much memory it needs, how much network bandwidth, and also we, it needs, and also we want to um, be able to, to provide the, the required network latency between, in case the application is not a sing, uh, an application that runs on a single server, but it's a distributed one. We want to ensure that the messages between the servers get in the required time. So we basically want to use these informations to, to make our intelligent decisions. Um, <coughs> But how do we measure, uh, the next focus would be on, on, on how, how do we actually measure network latency because the rest are quite easy to, to, to measure. Um, the first problem when you want to measure uh, latency between two, two, two points in the network is, is that the um, clock servers need to be synchronized. Um, you need to have the same time. If, if you have two, two computers, my, maybe your time is, is, uh, is not the same as the, serve, the, the computer on my computer. So you, you can have several, several possibilities. For example, each host will have a GPS receiver um, and then, then it's easy because you, you get them synchronized and then you can run just um, send a packet from one point to another and see when it was sent and when it was received. You just compute the difference and you know what's the latency on, on that path between the two, on the network between the two. Uh, you can also, uh, or, um, but this is not really scalable since you, you'd need to have on those millions of um, uh, servers for each one a GPS. Um, usually, um, then you, you if, if well, if you don't want to use this, and um, you, you can use a known uh, tool, uh, ping, just measuring round trip time. So the, in this case, you don't need the, the clocks to be synchronized. You just um, you send a, um, 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 a packet uh, to, to a destination, and then you wait for the reply, and you see how much it, time it took um, to, um, to, to get back a, back a reply. However, this, this um, uh, measurement is not always very accurate. 
we, you can also uh, use um, <coughs> a more uh, recent example of how to synchronize clocks on called the data center time protocol. But this is uh, slightly um, not easy to deploy since it, it requires special, special hardware. And um, here you again you'd get all the clock synchronized and you'd be able to just um, run one-way delay measurements. Also, there's um, well another another protocol called the precision time protocol, and in this case you you'd um, again bas basically you need to send um, uh, messages from from uh, from a, a master server. To, to the client that wants to synchronize the clock. And to, but this again assumes that the path, the delay from one, one uh, server to another is actually symmetric, that the path is also symmetric and this may not, may not happen. You can have, as I said, interference from other traffic. Um, <clears throat> and in this case, you'd actually measure the delay between, the, the latency between the two points as an average of of one way, one way and the other way back. So um, these are our challenges that we are uh, dealing with and we are um, working on constructing a, a custom uh, solution to um, based on, on, on clock synchronization and also measurement of network latency that will uh, enable to, um, us to, to, to use this in, in the, the data center and also to um, one of the, the, the key points is that you'd be able to run them whenever you want them and also not incur a lot of overhead on the network and on the server themselves. <clears throat> but I, uh, here I'm just going to show you what, what happens um, with an application performance, certain uh, representative cloud applications, what happens if you add network latency. Here is just a, um, this is an experiment run where between you have uh, two servers, a client and a server communicating to host a client and a server and uh, they are linked between um, uh, directly connected and you want to see what happens if you add delay on the, on the link. Um, as you can see, just a small amount of delay um, on the x-axis, you, on the x-axis you, um, there's a plotted add delay you, even if you just add 20 microseconds, can, this can lead to um, performance degradation for that, for that certain application. Here I have a web server, um, a database, um, um, a key value store, so typical cloud applications. And so this is very important. It's, it's important to, uh, this shows, um, serves as a motivation of why um, in data centers it's important to be able to provide uh, latency guarantees for applications. <coughs> um, so yes, the currently we are looking at what happens when the network latency increases and trying to uh, model the relationship between the application performance and the network latency using um, representative cloud applications, the three previous ones that I already mentioned, but also machine learning in a distributed setting, not running with on a single computer and also uh, other big data processing and graph processing. So in conclusion, coming back to the analogy of the car parking system, we'd want um, 
a system that can be able to uh, provide uh, and to find the exact place of where to, to place the application within the data center in order to provide the required guarantees that the application wants. Well, there's also a car bike, um, a bike parking service since we're, um, and um, well, uh, this is what I, what I had to say and I'm happy to take questions. Any specific questions on this, or we'll flip over to questions for everyone? Anyone want to know? This stuff matters, <laughs> but it's way down in the detail, so I can see people might, you know, it's a, that's what we, we actually go and stick gear that we build, hardware that we go measure stuff down at nanosecond time scales, which is not quite as fancy as some of the physicists, but very close. Okay, so we're all going to sit here and take general questions or we can revisit any of the questions you brought up. Uh, uh, there's some roving mics and uh, uh, we'll uh, see, do our best to answer anything you want to bring up. We had several things we can go back to um, or uh, if, you, if whoever raised them or anyone else wants to stick your hand up and uh, okay, first. <laughs> So, so the question was, why, why is it so difficult to detect a DDoS attack? And the, the answer is actually really quite easy. In, in its simplest form, there's no difference between a denial of service and, due to evilness and a denial of service due to popularity. Uh, for example, if you happen to be an enthusiast of sitting in a field in the south of England and listening to good music for the most part and being covered in mud, um, then, then you commit a denial of service by trying to contact the whatever technology it is today. Yeah, sea tickets selling Glastonbury tickets. Uh, so they, they had a million hits in the first minute. But that's just popularity. That no, 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 that no, that's the challenge oh. of DDoS. The d challenge of DDoS is it, it might come from, you know, for example, all of the arbitrary brand light bulbs, but actually they are all doing perhaps something legitimate. And so an easy way to, sorry, this is an easy way to cause a DDoS attack, don't do this at home, <laughs> is, is to cause everyone's um, fridge, light bulb, whatever, to simultaneously say, hey, I need an update. I'm going to go get an update. I'm going to go download an update from the update shop. Yeah, but the update shop wasn't equipped for everybody doing it at the same time, although it's a perfectly reasonable activity to make. And the action of trying to go the update, hey, an update, yeah, that process it, you know, might be fine for 0.1% of the light bulb population to do that, but it isn't equipped for 90% or should we, should we, we could, yeah, yeah. Um, so the problem is that that uh, the bad guys exploit vulnerabilities in software systems to install bad stuff in many places that happen to have the same vulnerability. And then the the thing uh, I think we're missing is that DDoS is distributed denial of service attack. So distributedness is that the first stage is somebody discovers there's something wrong with some webcam product or a range of them, uh, or even uh, dare one say a car manufacturer a locking system <laughs> finds a weakness and then exploits it by installing some bad stuff and then they may not actually use it themselves they may then sell this back they'll lease their 
effectively a botnet, which is a network of robots which they now own and control, which is installed in many people's homes or cars, and they'll say, hmm, do you want to uh, lease this from us? And we may not be breaking the law in our country when we sell this as a service to somebody in another country. So, in fact, some of the uh, countries where people source the exploits of the malware actually installing this uh, don't prosecute people unless they attack stuff in their own country. And indeed, they don't even do that. They actually install the malware, get some money from somewhere f via credit card payments, and then that person is handed the key or credential to sign onto the botnet of one million uh, fridges or, or light bulbs or whatever, uh, or home routers, actually, is a common case, and then launches an attack on somewhere and then sends an anonymous email saying, if you don't send you know, 50 bucks a minute to this credit card number, we won't stop. So that's basically the kind of life cycle of this. Um, the, and there's an interesting problem. There are many of these exploits out there because we're not, computer science is not perfect. Um, uh, but also, as I mentioned, a number of the technologies that are being shipped are way below par in compared with other stuff. Stuff that's been around a while is much less likely to have these exploits happen. And um, so there's new stuff being shipped, unfortunately, which has vulnerabilities, which are then, for people are finding the vulnerability, putting the malware in, by exploiting the vulnerability and then offering that as the, the sort of the full food chain, the whole kind of cycle, is they then offer that to other people to use to do uh, potentially it could be state actor just sort of being annoying or actually doing a real cyber attack for warfare reasons or it could be just routine criminals just being, we want to get some money off you. Um, mostly it's that latter actually. That's most of the cases turn out. Um, and if you trail, there's some people in... Um, uh, if you look up, there's a lovely read, which is um, uh, tr actually click trajectory from U uh, University of California, Berkeley. They actually followed the entire trail of where the credit card payments went to and did discover roughly what I've just described, which is there were people who were not breaking the law of their country, exploiting computers in a, in a second country, who were being paid by people from a third country to do stuff. In this particular case, the thing that was being done was just simply sending a large amount of spam which was itself not illegal. It was just offering products, which you could buy on the grey market, and the products were being sold by a fourth country into a fifth country and being bought by people using credit cards. Um, so that entire ecosystem, no point on the chain was there a law being broken. But the, the weak point was the exploit, and the exploit is over millions of devices. So what the internet's done is say, oh, look, we, we sell a new webcam. We don't bother setting up a different password for it. And a kitty out there discovers, oh, the, all the webcams have got the same password. Oh, look, I can write a program that logs into those, changes something, adds a bit of software, does an update, and then now I own this piece of software in a million places, or one billion places, potentially. So I hope that that's kind of what's going on roughly. Uh, there's... Yeah, there was one back there. Was, oh, there's one here, I think. Do you think with increased cyber threats and bots and attacks, personal attacks on people who set up their own profiles, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, I mean, social media has just gone absolutely crazy. Do you think there's enough security in place to protect individual people? How do you, how's it going to develop for people to sustain... A livelihood if they've been victim to taking part in social media and have maybe become damaged as a result of that? Um, well, I'm, I don't think we have the... That's a kind of social, political, economic, psychological yeah. 
I'm not sure we're the right people to answer that. I mean, it's a great question. It, yeah, it's a, gr it's a great um, question. I just feel it's... I think the answer is there aren't the tools to do that, right? We, we evidentially have many people having a very hard time online, and we don't have a good way of a priori protecting them, and all the way through the process, detecting the whole social process that went wrong. So I... But I... Because uh, um, I think there's a big issue with recruitment for future years to come in automation and bots and how are there going to be jobs for younger generations? What is there going to be for them to do to capture their enthusiasm and excitement to work mm. um, in organisations that are run by computers? So it's almost, I feel it's almost gone too far, computer development. It's wonderful and it's absolutely amazing. But it's reached a point where people are no longer able to do a job because computers do it all for them. And also the fear factor has increased so much that there's very little scope for people to kind of believe in themselves anymore, I think. Yeah, this is... Um, right, right. The, 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 the best research I know in this area uh, shows that we, we need to be cautious about what we say, what people believe and do online. Um, Dan and Boyd done a lot of work on younger people on the internet. When I say younger, I mean... Uh, younger than us, but not much, but going you know, people in their 20s. And their behavior is very different because they've grown up with the entire thing, um, uh, you know, rather than, you know, so that since they're kids. And they, their mechanisms for coping are very different uh, and don't necessarily depend on the technology. Um, so, uh, for example, using multiple persona online, uh, lying about their age and gender. I mean, a whole bunch of t tactics which have appeared and are very widespread in, 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 a, in, a, in a, younger age groups, and I'm not talking about 11-year-olds, I mean 18, 20, 25, 30 even, uh, whereas people above that have kind of come from, oh, it's email, oh, now I've got Twitter, oh, now I've got uh, Facebook, or oh, now I've got Hello or something, and, and, but haven't evolved the social defense. But I'm not the expert in this, but there are people studying it. Um, but I, I would certainly agree there are big societal issues in how we deal with that. I mean, it's not a, not a thing where, we, you know, there's no, we don't have a good solution. Yeah. It's, it's certainly, I, I don't believe it's a technical solution to the problems you describe. I think that that's a societal one. And maybe, mm. you know, we, once upon a, I mean, we've been through that revolution several times. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we actually some see some countries at the moment going through that revolution, maybe in, in the UK and Australia and, and, and the United States, they had the advantage of going through this revolution at least two, maybe three times over the past centuries. But we're, we're watching it occur in other countries where um, people, ultimately people retrain. That's, that's actually how you, you give them, return them fulfilment, is you, you, fight, you know, help to educate them to that process. One, two, three. So there's one here and then one yeah. at the back. Thank you. 
It's not on this project, but I know people that work on this. It is a big issue. I mean, there's a huge body of people that work in, in the community we're in. Even the ethics of simply doing the measurement were heavily discussed in the last few years, but that included the figuring out why are people doing things because clearly you want to... So the thing I just alluded to with the click trajectory was rather nice in that it showed there was this vast amount of bad stuff happening. In fact, it was mostly not bad. It was just a, a dark economy. It was gray. And that was useful to know because we don't worry about that nearly as much as these things where really bad consequences happen because a rather strange and relatively minor political interaction turns into this global effect. And so understanding that and figuring out what the actors are doing and why is interesting. But I, I'm not quite sure where to point at. No, no, sure. We don't look at uh, we don't look at content. That would not be legal. That is. Well, well, if somebody if somebody's examining the content of people's email, they're going to be in very serious trouble because the lawful intercept requires you to say why you're doing it, uh, inform people, and well, no, no, no. That, that, that if they're operating on UK employees or in fact in EU employees, it's not actually legal. It's well, no, no, but I mean, sorry, are, sorry, sorry. This is the law of okay, the, my so, world. If you, want, if you want an answer, we can take this discussion offline and have some other things, but we, we have a project with a bunch of lawyers on GDPR and Ripper and you know, Lawful Intercept, and I can tell you that is illegal. You can look at the source national impact. If you have good reason to think somebody is doing something illegal or breaking their employment contract, you might start to do something, but you'd have to go through process. You can't just start looking at content. That doesn't work. And that's European law. It's also UK law, and post-Brexit, it will still be UK law. Um, so, no, no, I'm, I'm aware of people claim they're doing X, Y, Z, we can, um, no, no, but um, they may be doing it, but they're breaking the law. Anyway, let's, sorry, I'm just, uh, there was a question at that gentleman at the back. Actually, actually it's an anecdote. Okay. Uh, about 1970, I think, uh, there was a huge increase of telephone traffic in the Cambridge area to the point where BT was faced with the considerable investment of putting in a duplicate exchange. And it was noticed, uh, somebody noticed that all the traffic came out of Corn Exchange Street. And there were certain ingenious members of the then mathematical laboratory. This was in the days when phone calls were done, dee, do, dee, 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 dee. and so they had done a little program that synthesized international dial codes. And there was an informal service <coughs> operating in the night time. Everybody in the university was coming in and doing free calls. Certain people were given the option of describing their technology and desisting or being detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's it. So it's I got a long history. Cool. There was one down here and then one at the back, I think. Was somewhere here. Yes, that's right. How responsible are companies for the bots they create? So when you're uh, talking about them for, for example, customer service, if a bot goes wild uh, and is horrible to one of your customers um, or damages that company's reputation, um, what's the sort of recourse there? 
Yeah, so there, there's a case of Microsoft launching a bot called Tay, which went wild twice or thrice. We went fascist, went racist, went everything. <laughs> so, because it was a machine learning experiment, it used to learn from people and people started teaching it bad stuff. It's like somebody learning a new language, the first thing they would learn would be curse words. <laughs> so, so in that sense, it was a it was a success because it did learn, but it learns back, it learned back stuff. The responsibility does lie with the organization, and they took it down a few times. Um, but the but the but the bots which are not learning from other people on Twitter, <laughs> such as news news agencies having bots or other organizations, product lines or car companies, they're just focusing on uh, disseminating their information, which would benefit them in order to sell their products, their services or to disseminate news on Twitter. Because Twitter is not only a social network, it's also an information network now because of the character limit, so it's pretty quick. Uh, people get their news sources, they look at their Twitter feed and they get, uh, they have subscribed to those, uh, those uh, Twitter accounts and they get those feeds so they don't have to go to the websites to look at them. So in that sense, it's not learning anything, so it's pretty much under, it slips under the, uh, the credibility sort of thing. Yeah. Chatbots. I think this this is still this 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 still is still uh, this is still unanswered. Uh, it's something we have we have to look into. But chatbots are if you, if some somebody hacks them, that's one thing. But if chatbots are not very intelligent that they'll start learning from other people and start uh, putting out stuff which is uh, offensive. Uh, so they would mo more or less just answer your queries. If they can't, they'll just forward it on to a human operator. So in that sense, they're probably safe for now. Um, there was one right at the back up there, yeah. Um, I'd like to ask a question with reference to your remarks about the Internet of Things and refrigerators as an example. As a relative dinosaur, I don't know why we need an Internet of Things because I think there are so many potential negative uses that... There is no, to, unless there's an economic advantage, why do we need to have a fridge that we can turn off or turn on from the airport or heating or washing machine? It is a complete irrelevance to most people, right. in my opinion. I, I, just, just to cut to the chase, I give a talk about IT for the last few years. Every single time I start with exactly that point, I totally agree. I cannot understand why. I have smart light bulbs in several rooms in my house. They're beautiful. I can change the color. I can have music change the color. Why would I want them to change color because of what I'm doing on my laptop here? How bizarre. Why do I want the electricity company to know when I open the fridge door? How bizarre. There's very, very few motivating examples 
anywhere. You know, the, the, the sort of poster child is like, yes, I forgot to uh, turn the oven off and I could remotely turn that off, but actually there are other ways of doing that, which is just like safe timeouts, motion detector, or I forgot to record a program, but I don't need internet access to do directly to all those devices to do that. So I would completely yeah. agree so with things those. that don't matter, if you see right. what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. And the negative possibilities, like I heard a talk, I think, about switching off dialysis machines and stuff yeah. like that, that all the unbelievable possibilities that yeah. could occur for something that contributes almost nothing, in so, my so opinion. There, there, right, there are so many examples, I mean, absolutely. And, and of course, there may be remote access to readings from things that a paramedic or your GP might want. That's not the internet. That's a, that's a, a very large number of very small private networks. And that is not anything to do with the internet. The internet might be a path, but the structure of the system is utterly different. And, and you know, the number of people who need to get any of things is tiny. The way you construct such a system is completely different. So I think this is a, a great point. Um, we, we are actually out of time. I was just going to say one thing about the Cambridge University, of course. There's a great anecdote at the back. I'll just add one, which is, you know, dangerous. The internet is dangerous, we heard, and socially it's becoming a problem. And I just point out that when women were first admitted to Cambridge and Girton College Open, they were not allowed to use the library because the ideas in books might upset their delicate minds. Um, and, you know, this is pretty shameful. Um, so... So there is an upside we heard about, about the net, but I mean, no, there's a downside, but I don't think, you know, that, that being informed is not part of that. If you have any feedback about anything, if you want to approach us now as we wrap up, uh, email us any, afterwards that we'd be very grateful of feedback. Um, I point at the Center for Research in Social Sciences, which is on this site, uh, does a lot of the stuff that was outside the scope of what we have expertise in. So people there like John Norton and whatever really good on that. I'll redirect to them if you've got those kinds of questions. And there are people in law, actually, who do some of this stuff as well. We're sort of techies. We've tried our best to answer your questions. And uh, thank you for coming along. Hope you have a good rest of the weekend. Thank you.